Secretary General Hammerstein said one thing about peacekeeping. He said, peacekeeping isn't a job for soldiers, but only soldiers can do it. And I think only good soldiers can do it. Quem scio tam moribus, quem doctrina habilum et donium esse, qui admitator honoris causa, ad gradum doctoratus in utroque jure, cam civili, quam canonico, itque tibi fide mea testor expondeo, totique academia. Thus did the President of UCG and Chairman of the New Ireland Forum, Professor Colm O'Hoche, introduce General William Callaghan on the Ides of March to be conferred with an honorary degree of Doctor of Laws by the National University of Ireland. The General was born in Buttervent, County Cork in July 1921, and having been born during the Troubles, appears to have developed a kinship for trouble, and has followed it round the world ever since. He joined the Army as a cadet at the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, and was commissioned as a Second Lieutenant nine months later. The shortened graduation period was necessary because of the war. But nonetheless, the military college had a considerable influence and impact on his attitude to life and his military career. I think it is the first time I learned perhaps specific discipline at, at, at um, you, you might say, at an, at an adolescent stage, outside the home and that where we had it before. But here we were getting it from different people in a very regimented way. And we were getting it uh, under the command and direction of officers who had started the army, you know, and who themselves were very strict disciplinarians on themselves and in their application to the work. So they applied that very much to, to the, the cadet college and at that time. You know, perhaps the cadet college was more strict than any other part of the army in this discipline, and I'm glad it was. Um, is there too much an emphasis on discipline in the army, do you think? Oh, good heavens, not at all, not at all. Many people seem to object to discipline who have never been exposed to it. You know, discipline, discipline is, a, is a wonderful training. Looking at General Costello, mm. did you ever think that you would reach the same rank? No, indeed, and, uh, and uh, uh, I was always uh, amazed at his youthfulness and the, the onerous task he took on at that time and how well he did it. You know, people, people often forget that the, the, the people who, who, the officers who started the army, these are the, the people who were able to develop the army during the emergency to its high operational status. They were wonderful people. A fairly blunt man. Hmm? Well, that might be even an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very straight man where the spade was a spade, yes, indeed. Would you would you um, emulate him in that sense? You you have a reputation for being um, straightforward and, and uh, direct. You know, one of, one of the principles of war is the conservation of force or the conservation of energy. And there's no point in beating around the bush and calling a spade anything else than a spade as early as possible so that everybody knows that there's no point in wasting any other time. Get on with the job. It is this direct attitude to army life and to the problems that such a life throws into relief, coupled with a determined attitude to sport, 
which spawned General Callaghan's nickname. He is known affectionately by his comrades as the Bull. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Dunn served as a junior officer with him, both at home and abroad, and this is his perception of the general as seen from the junior ranks. Looking, looking back on it now that you mention his nickname after the Bull, I'd say a lot of it derived from his physical appearance. Physically, he was a very strong, tough man. I, I have an idea he was still... Uh, I'm sure he was about 40, 41 years of age at that time. I have an idea he was still playing as a front-row forward for the Southern Command team. And uh, I'd say his nickname, apart from temperament, I'm sure it derived a lot from his physical appearance, because I certainly wouldn't care to be in the front row of a scrum packing down ups at him, that uh, he'd, put, he'd put the fear of God in, into any opposing forward. Some of my contemporaries, I know, would have the name for being tough men, where young officers were here now after a commissioning ceremony, and a lot of these young officers... They would uh, rate, I'm sure, an awful lot of my contemporaries as terribly tough men. But uh, as they go on and go through the the system, they'll find that um, officers just evolve that way. That you can't afford, like Mother McCree's dog, to be going a bit off the road with everybody and letting everybody do his own thing. Otherwise, the army system as such falls down. So there has of necessity to be a, a certain degree of toughness. Quinta recounted the three traits of our legendary warriors, the Fianna, traits that still remain admirable today. Truth in our hearts, strength in our limbs, and deeds in accordance with our words. These are the characteristic, uh, characteristics subscribed to by today's successors of the Fianna, Ogwood and Haven, one of whose leaders honours the National University of Ireland by joining its ranks of graduates today. Lieutenant General William Callaghan epitomizes the more than 25 years of service which the Irish Army has given to the United Nations peacekeeping forces in many lands. During that period, General Callaghan and some 30,000 colleagues of all ranks have followed a long line of Irishmen who served overseas. To Bill Callaghan and his colleagues in the post-war army, the notion of overseas service seemed simply ridiculous. As a newly independent nation ourselves, we had no colonies to defend or foreign property to protect, nor had we any need for gunboat diplomacy. The army languished a little in the Depression of the 50s, and Bill Callaghan found himself in charge of the FCA in County Clare, a position which some considered to be a bit of a military wilderness. Colonel Dunn. I wouldn't call the FCA for start the, the military wilderness, because in those times, again, you're projecting yourself back into the late 50s and early 60s. The FCA then, as it does today, operated on a shoestring. And to be sent out as a battalion commander to the FCA, remember now here the whole of the County Clare, training was conducted in pokey little halls or rented accommodation, rented kitchens all over the area. There was a major problem involved from the word go eh, with uh, logistics, first of all. How do you get people? How do you 
decide on a, a, a training location for start. How do you convey people there? Because I think the only transport available to a battalion at that time was one station wagon. How do you organize your night's training? Remember, you may have three cent at that stage, you probably had three centers going in each location each night of the week, with the exception of Saturday night. You had field days on a Sunday. And um, from an organizational point of view, to get a voluntary force together for training, to keep them happy, to let them all go home thinking that their journey was worthwhile or that their time spent at the training had been worthwhile. It conjured up all the resources of Barnum and Bailey plus Duffy's Circus plus you had to be an entertainer, you had to be a diplomat, you had to be a charmer and behind it all your purpose was to train them as soldiers. And I'd say that his, Bill Callahan's stint with the 22nd Battalion probably did more to um, mould his character for the role he achieved in afterlife than any particular aspect of his army service. In 1971, at the age of 50, Bill Callaghan received his first command appointment as commanding officer of the 2nd Infantry Battalion stationed at Carlborough Barracks in Dublin. Every senior officer remembers his first command, some with greater affection than others. It is 10 years since Callaghan left Carlborough, and when he returned to his old barracks recently, I went along with him. General, it's pretty windswept here in Cahalbrua Barracks. What are your early memories of this barracks? I was saying, you know, I, I came from the Western Command. I had served uh, in all the commands in the Army, and I was in the Western Command, and I was transferred from the West here to uh, OC of the 2nd Battalion and the barracks in uh, 1971. And, and you know, that, that uh, battalion command in any army is the, the essence of command. It is, it is the time you can uh, uh, apply your, uh, your attitude and your personality to a unit. It's when you have a close personal capacity of influencing the unit. And when you leave battalion command, you only influence units then through somebody else after that. It's, it's the last time you have the personal influence in a unit. It's a wonderful situation. What yeah. are your attitudes to discipline in a unit like that? Are you well, a hard taskmaster? Well, I'm a hard taskmaster, first of all, myself. A very hard taskmaster myself. I start early, I work late. I work very hard and I play very hard, and I expect everybody else to do exactly the same thing in the interest of the unit. And, you know, soldiering is, is um, a very complete task. You know, soldiering is about saving people's lives. That is, you have a responsibility for preparing them for battle in all its aspects. You are responsible for what the unit does and fails to do. You can never close the shop, put up the shutters, and go away and say, I won't open the shop again now until Monday, and maybe I won't open until Tuesday. You could never do that with the army. The unit's a 24-hour job, seven days a week. You say it's about saving lives, but yeah. surely, in, in essence, it's about taking life. It, it, taking lives, but saving the lives of your own men in so doing. They must be so proficient as to be able to do the other thing while protecting themselves. It's also a very powerful position. I mean, the position you have at the moment is an extremely powerful position, isn't it? I think that would be overlapping. It's a very responsible position, I think, and, and in, in identifying that responsibility, yes, there is power in it too. But the, the administration of power uh, places an awful lot of responsibility on the person who has it. 
Can't you destroy somebody very easily and, and make them just as easily? You can make them and break them. Oh, to yeah. one you say, come and he cometh, and to another, go, and he has to go. Not just, not just as simple as that, you know, because the, the whole scene uh, demands a, a, a moral application. You know, if you say go and you're going to dismiss somebody, you must be satisfied that in doing so you are justified. And that is a well-thought-out decision and a warranted decision. And it's the same thing if you if you are going to, to make somebody or promote somebody. You must be satisfied that this is the right thing and that you're justified in doing it. It's not a personal whim because you are responsible for what that man will do or fail to do. Does it ever bother you at all that you may have made some wrong decisions? Oh, of course, absolutely always bothers me. And of course I've made wrong decisions. You know, it's, life is not about making mistakes. It's about the essence of the mistake or the degree of it, you know, because that's why the word mistake is in the English language and in most languages. Oh, yes, this is something I gave by the these were uh, These are maps of, uh, of the Congo. This is a rather excellent map of Katanga, as you see there. This is another map of the same place. Did you enjoy the Congo? Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. A lot of it in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that was the roughest of the assignments you had? I mean, you were in Cyprus as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, yeah, that was a, a difficult assignment. You know, UN was only starting then itself. You know, that was, we said, 1960. It was the first major peacekeeping operation after UNF-1, which was in, in Sinai, and which was disestablished in, in 64 or 67. Uh, but the UN was only developing. The military application to peacekeeping was only developing. You know, and uh, the requirement of training and dress and equipment and logistic support were almost unknown. So it was... It was uh, in embryo and extremely difficult. We were learning all the time. That's why I think that General McKeown had the most difficult job of any force commander ever in the Congo, for those reasons. The UN was starting, the military side was starting. It was his first exposure to the UN. As a young man, he was a very young man, and he was commanding 35,000 soldiers of a whole variety of nations, and the Indians and Indonesians and... Uh, uh, Swedes, Finns, Ghanaians, whole lot of these. That was a tremendous challenge. And he did Ireland proud in doing that job. What is the most difficult thing? First of all, what about the Congo itself? Um, it was your first experience of Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you learn anything there that stood you in, in great stead later on? Uh, I, I've learned that it's important to have the loyalty of soldiers and have them very well trained. That's, that's very important. And to be able to manage and look after them. Bill, at that time, he had been, um, I think he was OC of the 22nd Battalion FCA. He had been there quite a few years and I hadn't seen him for a long, long time until we formed up in Limerick in August. I think it was August, Monday, 1961. We were due to leave for the Congo in December. But because there had been um, some trouble in Elizabethville, 
it was decided that we should get together much earlier than intended for combined training. And the platoon commanders at that stage used to always run and race to get as far away from Bill as possible so that we could do our own things in our own time at our own pace. But he seemed to be at everybody's shoulder. He was like the guardian angel. Every time you looked behind you, Bill was in the background. And my God, I must say, he really, uh, he really produced a company, that B Company of 36 Battalion. I doubt if ever a company went overseas before or since, which was as well trained as that particular one. The UN Force Commander in the Congo was, of course, the Irish Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Sean McCohen, who remembers General Callaghan well. Uh, Callaghan was a man uh, when receiving a job uh, went through and saw it to its end uh, successfully Uh, this was something that one came to expect of Callaghan that uh, given a job that was as good as done at the time it was given that's how I regarded him Now, did you meet him again subsequently? He went on to serve in Cyprus. I think he did three tours of duty in Cyprus. Um, Do you think that that kind of opportunity that the overseas service provided at that stage for officers in the army laid the foundation for his success recently as a force commander? Oh, I have no doubt at all about this. Um, uh, This uh, conditioned Callaghan for his... uh, uh, appointment now and his uh, appointment uh, in the Lebanon where he uh, performed such an excellent uh, job in a very very difficult situation uh, this uh, not only uh, conditioned Callaghan but uh, brought himself and uh, other fine officers like him to to uh, to the fore uh, which which would have been hard to to detect at home because of the uh, rather mundane sort of life that the army led, particularly before the Congo and before um, our uh, border troubles became acute. Now, he himself has said that uh, he was impressed by yourself when you were chief of uh, the UN force in the Congo. Uh, And he also was of the impression that you had a more difficult job in your command than he has in his I don't regard uh, the job that I had as having been uh, more difficult than his. Uh, The word I would use is different. We had uh, two totally different tasks. Um, uh, Mine was a a very big and scattered sort of operation. Uh, His was a more tightly contained uh, operation, but uh, in consequence, uh, much more easily ins- influenced by uh, political pressures from outside, uh, particularly from the south. century left on the field not a few. Thomas Davis continued, for in far foreign lands from Dunkirk to Belgrade lie the soldiers and chiefs of the Irish Brigade. Like their predecessors, 
Some of the soldiers and chiefs of today's Irish army died far afield, stretching from the Congo to Lebanon. Today, we couple their names with that of General Callaghan and express our sorrow to their relatives and their loss. What do you say to the parents or to the wives or next of kin of people who have been lost under your command? Well, you know, soldiering is, is something uh, where you have to, to accept that there is a possibility of casualties. All that one can say to them is that, that uh, they have been lost. It's a tremendous tragedy to the family. But in their loss, the objectives which they were pursuing, they have helped to achieve those. And they are, they are remembered very, very dearly for that contribution. And uh, the army is ever interested in uh, the, the, the dependence of people who have been lost. And so is the United Nations, very, very much so. And it is a tragedy that if they're lost, but these losses in their own way consider to the maturing of units. That may seem a sad thing to say, but it's very true. How important is your religion to you? You know, there's a great saying in the Ahari Torni. You know, I can tell you that uh, religion is exceedingly important, particularly under stress. And uh, the chaplain and the service he gives, and uh, the strength religion gives, and not a religion gives to, uh, to people, is really amazing when they're in tight corners. But then again, if you look at the religious setup in the Middle East, wouldn't mm. you say that the religions perhaps are partly uh, the cause of the conflict there? I'm inclined to think, you know, that, that, that uh, it's when the, when, when, when the religion takes on a political significance, then you're getting into trouble. You know, no religion, no religion uh, 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 directs or commands war. It can't. You know, but it's when it, it, it's when the influence of the religion uses the the, 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 the military side of things to uh, to establish and maintain its position. I think then you get into the trouble. And I'm not so sure that it is religion at that stage. It, just, it certainly is religious fervor, though, isn't it? I think it is political fervor, perhaps on a religious guise. <laughs> You think then that the world would be a terrible place without religion, despite the fact that, that without, religions without are at the basis of an awful lot of conflicts? Yeah, I think without, without a genuine appreciation and application of religion, I think society would be much worse. It makes us control ourselves, you know, understand other people's feelings and beliefs. It makes us for better people, you know. Other people would have different views than that, I must say. I must say, and people are entitled to their own views, but I see it as a very important aspect of, uh, of life. Yeah. Sergeant Rourke, how are you? Joe, how are you keeping? Pleasure to see you, sir. Delighted to see you. Welcome back to it. I'm delighted to see you. You're looking well. Oh, very well, sir. Well, the years are very light on you. Indeed, uh, I'm still at, the, still at the fitness and the football. Oh, you have a great I must say. You had Barry McGuinn in here recently. Had you training yeah, before this fight? It was a matter of um, whether or not this was the most suitable venue for him yeah. in relation to uh, training. To training. And did he train here? He did. He didn't. He, he spent for he, he spent several hours here. In fact, is that so? And uh, apparently, it wasn't the most ideal that he wanted. The, yeah. The gym itself, there was no problem. Uh, yeah. But apparently, there was a few other minor factors in this. I see. It would have been nice to have him on. You've got a new floor. Hmm? What's the basketball team like? What? 
Pardon me? The band still, I suppose, are the top notchers, are they? They're the top. Huh? Not exactly as good as they used to be. Is that so? Mm. Yeah. But it's just used very extensively. Yeah. A gym team, have you a gym? We have, sir. Yeah. So good one? Well catered for them. Yeah. Very good. Do you spend much time keeping fit yourself, General? I do, as a matter of fact. I, I, um, as I said to you, I, I, work, I work fairly hard. I keep very active. In Unifil, uh, I spend as much as time as I can in the field with the soldiers, and that means walking a lot and travelling a lot. And then uh, I try and regiment myself to about um, an hour to two hours, brisk walking every, every night or during every day. And that helps me a lot to, to keep fit. You've spent quite a long time away from your family. Do you regret that? No, no, I certainly don't regret it, but I appreciate very much they're making me available to go and taking my wife, taking on the responsibility of seven children and uh, looking after them and taking the responsibility while I'm away. You know, that's, that's a, 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 a wonderful uh, support because, you know, you go overseas as a volunteer. You are not sent. You have to make the decision. You volunteer to go. Now, in volunteering to go, you must have the support of your family and your wife and family to continue on in your absence. And without that support, it is not possible to get the exposure. Having the full support of his family enabled Callaghan to throw himself into his work abroad with total dedication. And he has used his time well, picking up on the small, important diplomatic skills, like remembering people's names years after he had met them. This is particularly true of soldiers who have served in units he commanded, and he also believes that the rapport between officers and men has changed radically because of overseas service. Of course, there's, there is no doubt about it, uh, as I was saying, that it's, um, it's command by participation. They're living with the men for 24 hours of every day, seven days a week. So they get very, very close to the men and very appreciative of the capacity and the calibre of the men and the variety of talents they have. And a lot of these talents I haven't seen until they go overseas. Where you find that you have an excellent cook, in, and he may be a driver at home, but he turns out there to be an excellent cook. Sir, A4861, Trace Sergeant called today, Mass Cadre. Welcome oh, back to the Mass. Good to thank you very much indeed. When were you in Lebanon? Huh? Uh, 46th and 55th, sir. 46th and 55th. What job had you? Huh? Uh, well, my first job out there at the 46th was uh, section commander with number one battalion. Mm -hmm. And I was battalion sergeant with number two battalion with the 55th. In, where in Brashid or where? Uh, well, we've done, uh, we done a month, uh, two months in the rotation in East Yeah, Bay. We started in Haddad, uh, we started in, um, in Brashid sure. and finished up in Haris. In Haris? Yeah. yeah. Enjoyed both trips? Enjoyed them very much. Mickey Broderick, how are you? Good, good to see you. How are you keeping? Good. Huh? <laughs> you're looking very young. Huh? You're looking very young. We got it on feel it. How's the family? <laughs> oh, ah, they're all reared up now. Have you, have you, you left the orderly room? You have? I have, Your yeah. open A company? Open HQ. HQ company. Uh, giving them advice. You're kind of an, admi <laughs> an administrative consultant with a, with a lot of advice to give. <laughs> this was the orderly room sergeant, a wonderful man who looked after all the administration of the unit. Really wonderful. Callaghan entered the Defence Forces in 1939 and was steadily promoted through the ranks until he was appointed Lieutenant General in 1981. 
His appointment in that year as the second force commander of UNIFIL, the 6,000-strong multinational United Nations interim force in Lebanon, was an honor not only to him but to Ireland and to its army. Among those who serve under him and who, in the performance of their duties, apply patience and tact rather than <coughs> firepower, are soldiers from France, Fiji, Finland, Ghana, Holland, Italy, Ireland, Norway, Senegal, and Sweden. Peacekeeping warriors all. During his various tours of duty with the UN, Bill Callaghan came to know how the system worked and, more importantly, what was expected of peacekeeping forces. When he was promoted to the rank of colonel in 1976, he was 55 years of age. Many in his position might have thought of retiring. Instead, he took an appointment as a senior staff officer with the United Nations Truth Supervision Force. From this appointment on, Callaghan would never look back. Two years later, in March 78, he became acting chief of staff of UNSO until 1979 when he returned to army headquarters in Dublin and was appointed assistant chief of staff with the rank of brigadier general. Further promotion came within a year and this time he became adjutant general of the defence forces. Callaghan by now had made many friends in the UN, both military and civilian, one of whom is the Chief Administrative Officer of UNDOF, based in Damascus, and whose name is James Conley. I first met Bill in uh, Ziggy camp in Cyprus when he was contingent commander with uh, UNFISIP. And during that period I, mo I knew him mostly in the social life, mainly by the great hospitality he showed to the civilians of UNFISIP, and particularly the Irish civilians. There were about 10 of us there at that time. We never missed a party in, uh, in, in Ziggy Camp, an Irish party. Uh, I, I heard at that time about Bill's reputation of being a tough man, but uh, frankly, I never saw that side of him when he was in Cyprus. Later on, when I moved on to UNSO, I worked more closely with him because he became acting chief of staff in 78, and I happened to be in charge of administration in an acting capacity also at that time. So we had to work very closely together for many decisions that had to be made in the mission from day to day. And during that period, I found him to be a champion of everybody who was... In other words, he, he, he was very keen to show fair play always. And I, I found that his toughness was more towards his superiors than to his subordinates. That was my experience with him. In fact, he was a great champion of the, a group of field service officers, which are the, mainly the civil service types in, uh, in the UN. Because we are the field service are isolated from UN headquarters in, in so much as we have no real representation there except the office we deal with. And so the cause was often left to be fought by people like Bill. And Bill never lost an opportunity to promote the field service people. The person responsible for appointing Callaghan as commander of UNIFIL was the Under Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr Brian Urquhart, who retired in February this year. Mr Urquhart was with the United Nations since it was founded, and he established and was responsible for all its peacekeeping operations. Why did he choose Bill Callaghan as commander of UNIFIL? Well, I think for a number of very good reasons. In the first place, he's someone that we knew very well from a whole series of past peacekeeping assignments in the Congo, in Cyprus, and in the Middle East. 
He had very recently at that time been the chief or the chief the deputy chief of staff of the United Nations Truth Supervision Organization in Jerusalem, which is a, a, a an organization which spans the whole series of Middle East countries we deal with. And uh, UNICEF is a particularly difficult job, and it does require someone with proven experience of that very complicated area. It requires somebody who really understands the basic problems which Unifil was facing, which were extremely complex ones. Somebody who knows the people involved, and somebody who's proved that they that, that, that they can function capably in that very difficult uh, environment. And that's why we wanted Bill Callahan. And of course, we wanted someone from Ireland, uh, partly because there's an Irish contingent in Unifil, and partly I think because uh, we felt that it was a very good nationality for this. Uh, for this particular and very difficult job. And we wanted to be sure we got someone who really could do the job and could settle right in, because there wasn't any question of learning on the job in Unifil. We have to have somebody there who can do it right right, right from the first go, otherwise it's uh, too complicated. But General Callahan, in the first place, is an extremely good sort of all-purpose peacekeeping soldier with a great deal of experience. Uh, he's got a very level-headed view of things. He's very down-to-earth. Uh, he is is tough. Uh, he is extremely fair-minded, uh, and he doesn't get rattled when things don't go according to plan, which they absolutely never do in Lebanon. I mean, if you start going in one direction, be perfectly sure that things will go in the other direction in the next minute or so. I mean, it's a very complicated area, and I think for all these reasons, we, we wanted to, to have someone in this most difficult of all peacekeeping commands who we who we knew and who we knew had the qualities to exercise the command. And I think that Bill's mixture of down-to-earth qualities, toughness, and knowledge of the area were a very good, uh, were a very good mix for this particular job. And I think it's, he's been in that job far too long, as a matter of fact. He's only just left it. He's been in there for five years, which is longer than he should have been, because it's a very, very demanding job. weakness in the peacekeeping force was exposed in 1982 when the Israeli army invaded Lebanon. Because of the mandate which the Security Council had given UNIFIL, the force was powerless to do anything about the invasion. There is a wrong perception of the role of the force, Callaghan insists. It is the difference between peacekeeping and peace enforcement. Peacekeeping, as an operation, is providing a conflict control mechanism to allow parties to stop fighting and continue by cooperation to make peace. Such a concept is based on the acceptance of a force on a broad political base, agreement in the Security Council, and consequently a lightly armed force for self-protection. Now, peace enforcement is entitled totally different. It envisages a force to enforce peace 
by military means, which means agreement in the Security Council to a force armed suitably to carry out that purpose. Bill Callaghan's career over the last quarter of a century mirrors exactly the Army's involvement with the UN peacekeeping operations. It has also brought honour and distinction to the country and to the Army, views which were expressed by the Minister for Defence, Paddy O'Toole, and the Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Tyg O'Neill, when General Callaghan received his degree. Firstly, the views of the Minister. Uh, for the country as a whole, it has been a great honour and privilege to us as a nation to have people of the calibre of the general at uh, his present post in uniform and indeed for the army personnel themselves. I think they can take pride in the fact that uh, here's an Irishman, one of their own, uh, getting international recognition for what is a very important job, one of the most difficult indeed, as has been said in United Nations operations so far in the peacekeeping area. So all of that adds up to uh, something of great significance for Ireland as a whole, for the Irish Army, and indeed for the gentleman himself, uh, General Kelvin. Thinking back to the first groups that we sent to uh, the Congo, it is uh, good from a soldier's point of view to see the developments and the changes that there have been since then. We sent soldiers to the Congo in the green uniforms that <laughs> were designed. designed for uh, fairly well designed for service in this climate. Well, I don't <laughs> need to say that there's a difference in the climate. Yes, I think we all uh, remember them walking out <laughs> to the, the globe masters in Baldonnell and yes. even that has changed now. And the soldiers that went there remember walking off the globe masters <laughs> in the Congo in those uniforms. <laughs> Uh, so there, there have been great developments. I suppose uh, one of the biggest uh, changes there is from our point of view now uh, between the Congo and then of course it is uh, a quarter of a century later uh, is the communications. There was a, it was a very big problem when we sent our first contingent to the Congo. Uh, the communications were, well, uh, at best imperfect. Whereas now we can dial our soldiers on the public telephone system in, in Lebanon and we can speak to them and that is a tremendous help to the soldiers themselves. They don't have that uh, sense of isolation that was very real and uh, could be a problem. Overseas duty in the cause of peace was acknowledged by the award of four United Nations medals. These awards reflect honour not only on the General, but also on many, many other members of the Defence Forces who served and still serve with distinction in the cause of peace. The citation for the Distinguished Service Medal awarded to General Callaghan in 1984 reads as follows. For distinguished service as commander of the United Nations Force in Lebanon, where he has displayed outstanding qualities of leadership, resource, and devotion to duty. His successful handling of a very delicate and difficult situation has enhanced the reputation of the Irish Defence Forces and made a significant contribution to establishing stability in the area, thus contributing generally to world peace. It is generally accepted that the task of UNIFIL is the most difficult peacekeeping operation ever undertaken. And it is a source of pride to all of us 
that a fellow countryman should lead and guide this international mission so successfully. Well, you know, Emil, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful honour honor for me, uh, unworthy though I am for that degree. And I think I would be, uh, if I wasn't a little chuffed at getting it, I would be less than human. But I rather think that uh, this degree is for the army. It's a recognition to the army for uh, its association. It's very successful association with peacekeeping in 25 years. And uh, I'm very happy for that. And I'm particularly happy, I think, because this is uh, also a recognition to, to the young soldiers. And these actually are the people who make peacekeeping possible. The young soldiers from Ballyfermot or Ballysadair or Kildimo or wherever. These are the young chaps who are at the checkpoints and at the flashpoints where incidents happen. And it is their judgment and their maturity and their prof professionalism that makes peacekeeping work. Many people think that at each flashpoint there's a di diplomatic general with a lot of experience to solve the problem. It isn't. These problems are assessed, confronted and solved by young soldiers, 17 and 18, and young corporals and young officers. And they're a wonderful credit to the peacekeeping force, to the army, to their units, and perhaps in a particular way to their families who give them the moral character, and to their teachers, their national teachers, who do an excellent job in producing excellent young men. Ego actoritate me contessa admittote ad gradum doctoratus in utroque jure. Munich started in South Lebanon in 1978. In its present area of deployment, there was slightly in excess of 10,000 Lebanese living because they had been forced out by the, the circumstances of war, bombings, actions, etc. The majority population had moved out to the north at that time, uh, in Beirut, etc. Now, in that same area of deployment, there is, there is in in excess of 400,000 Lebanese back living, family lives, village lives, children going to school, shops open, stocked with goods, the services being run, the hospitals are opened, tobacco is being grown, and perhaps the, the most normal life in Lebanon is being lived in that area. I think that's a tangible indication of the success of UNIFIL. It has brought back the people, and there is no peace without people. There is no doubting the benefits which UN service has bestowed on the Defence Forces. No doubting either that General Bill Callaghan found his métier in the Middle East where he has proved, despite his nickname, that he is no bull in a china shop. But why is it, I wondered, that Irish soldiers suit their UN role so well? I think it's perhaps the nature of the beast. We are, we are good communicators, we are good talkers, we are good listeners, and, you know, we have what a lot of other nations don't have. We have a, a fair good quantity 
and quality of cunning, I think. <laughs> and that, uh, I think that is important in the international scene. Well, I, I know an awful lot of people generally who would say that you have a share measure of it yourself. I'm amazed that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs>